for the teachings of the Buddha and a boundless gratitude to my teachers and all who have inspired and helped me along the way for all that has been possible in my life. Thank you. A little bit of dialogue for maybe 10 minutes to sort of get us in the spirit and I understand that there's going to be water, drinking water dotted around and um, and if, as I say, if you could use this as an opportunity to really be alone and be with whatever is going on, I think it would be really helpful and always know that this silence has a kind of sacred tradition and if we break it we're not only affecting ourselves but we also are impacting those around us. So I really ask you to, to kind of let's create a really sacred space of silence here this afternoon. So it's approaching 3.30 and we scheduled to stop round about 5. I am filled with energy. I don't know where it came from. I guess you've all been helping me and I thank you. I'm surprised that I've got this far and I feel like I can go a lot further. So um, please, are there any questions, comments, anything that anybody would like to share? Personally, feel that you've definitely come way up from when you came into the room. Oh, yeah, that's nice to know. Yeah, when Ronnie was describing me, I thought, Oh, God, I mean, <laughs> do I look that devastating? <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel very happy. Yeah, I love doing this, and you know, that makes it hard to give it up, but you know, I'm so committed to doing what is best for me because I know that that is going to enable me to live as long as possible. Creating a climate in which the virus has as little to do as possible feels like the most important thing. And for me that climate is care and love and gentleness. And we each have our own journeys, you know. I'm not for one moment saying that my experience is needs to be the experience of others. I listened to a couple of the tapes and um, a few years ago I started to and I wonder when you mentioned memories of early, very early sexual Right. Tapes. How did your diagnosis lead to those memories? Oh, right. And what did you do with them? Well. Before they became healing. Because they are You've got a good memory. That was from your talk here last year. Right. Yeah. This time How last year. Well, what happened was, I went to South Africa in, in May 1989, primarily to be with two friends who were dying of AIDS. These were my two last gay friends in South Africa who were alive. Up to that point, every gay person that I knew in South Africa had died and I really wanted to be with these guys. So I flew out on short notice and Roy, who I'd been in a relationship with many years before, died before I, I got here. And Michael died soon afterwards. 
and it was really hard, you know. I didn't know I was HIV positive at the time. Then, you know, I was really looking forward to getting home to, to the United States. And then two, two nights before I was about to leave, my father died. He had a massive heart attack and <coughs> called to my mother and I in the living room. And he was in the middle of this heart attack and we both held him and he died. So that was horrible, obviously. And, you know, by the time the funeral and, you know, the estate and all of that was dealt with, I kind of staggered onto the plane and was poured off the plane on the other side and immediately resolved to get tested because there were too many things going on. I was so stressed. And so that was the circumstance in which I got the, this information that I was also HIV. Well, when I went on retreat in that fall, it was a volcanic retreat. I mean, I'd never experienced fears and anger like I experienced then, and such grieving and sadness, and I was just a case, you know, I was a total case. And I, I believe that it was almost like the egg cracked, you know, the protectiveness cracked, and on that retreat, all of a sudden, I started having really vivid and clear memories of what happened when I was an infant, like two months old. And I was sexually abused by someone in my family, and um, it was devastating, you know. I mean, it was also good because it, it helped me understand why my relationship with him had been so difficult all our lives. But that's what happened, and so I was dealing with, with that and the virus at the same time. It was an absolute storm. And I think that, that sometimes when we have traumatic you know, events in our lives that can unleash all sorts of other things that have been held in and that's what happened. I have a certain dramatic flair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just want to know some technical information when you um, are diagnosed no, I just knew the last time that I had unprotected sex, and that was before we knew about protected sex, and so it, it was either 1981 or earlier, because after that, actually when AIDS started really coming into the reality of the gay world overseas, I just stopped. You know, I just stopped. And of course, at that time, the media just had a great field day with it all, you know, painting ever gloomier pictures. It was terrifying. Are you ready for a break? Yeah. Yeah. Well, do we, do we have a bell or something? Mm -hmm. I join Hela in inviting anyone who'd like to be closer to the front to, if necessary, bring a chair forward. You know, there's a lot of space here, so know that that's a possibility. So, lest you've forgotten that I'm a, a meditation zealot, I'm going to ask you to join me for a, a, a quick little loving-kindness meditation. So that for those of you who are not familiar with this practice, you can just have a little taste of it. 
invite you once again to allow your eyes to close gently. Arrive once again here together fully to the extent possible, letting go of what's been and thoughts about the future. giving again attention to the sitting posture the feeling of pressure in the buttocks this will be a guided meditation on loving kindness to the heart center of the body that's the place between the breasts the, the um, emotional center of the body you may want to just lightly touch it with your hands just, that's the place where all our loveliness is gathered all our beauty our exquisite nature resides there What I'm going to do is I'm going to repeat some phrases which I invite you to repeat silently to yourselves. If it feels like another phrase is more appropriate to you, of course use that phrase. These are just suggestions. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be freed from suffering. being aware of any stirring that you might feel in the heart center and if there's no stirring that's okay too sometimes there's loving kindness and sometimes there's not it comes and goes like everything else may I be happy may I be peaceful may I be filled with love and kindness and compassion May I be free of suffering. Extending and holding loving kindness to oneself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. 
May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. The Buddha said if we looked all over the world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and kindness and compassion than ourselves. holding oneself in the embrace of love. someone or some people that you find it very easy to love, to hold in love, people to whom you can extend love without any problem. May you too be happy. You may bring an image of that person or sense of them to mind. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May you be free from suffering. country, 
throughout Africa, throughout the world. Human beings and the beings of the sea and the sky, the waters. Perhaps even the beings of other universes and realms, including everyone without discrimination in your great heart of loving kindness. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. Those who are starving, those who are in prison, those who are ill, those who are tortured, those with little and those with abundance. May all beings be happy and peaceful, filled with love and kindness and compassion. May all beings be freed from suffering and the causes of Holding for a moment whatever it is that you're feeling tenderly, gently. And now returning once again to your heart center, to yourself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be freed from suffering and the causes of suffering. awareness again to the experience of sitting. And in your own time, when it feels right, please gently open your eyes. part of that meditation that I didn't include and for most people it's the most difficult part and I always approach it very gently and we certainly don't have time to really do that which is to begin to ex- to explore our willingness to ex- extend loving kindness to those for whom we're angry those who've hurt us those with whom we have some sort of conflict. And that is the development of 
loving kindness. At some point, that is genuinely possible. Sometimes it takes a long time. If the sense of grievance is little, of course it will be quick. And if the hurt was immeasurable, it could take a lifetime. So, extending loving kindness even to those who hurt us. And it's really the willingness to explore the possibility that is important because of course at the beginning we won't feel loving kindness we'll say may you be happy and we'll probably have images of, of like throttling person you know so it's a, it's a long process this is your time I invite you to come forward really as you need I'm not going to be around afterwards, so we encourage you to uh, bring whatever questions you have to our group, because very often the questions that are a little difficult and tender are questions that other people have. Uh, yeah. One is um, <coughs> grappling with pain, of mm. which doubt sometimes arises. Mm. You talk in your book about reaching a break-even point. Reaching and? A break-even point. Right. Okay. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, at the beginning of my practice, what happened was, you know, that 18-month period, it was just horrible. You know, so I went into meditation retreat, it was chaos, there was pain everywhere, I was dealing with all these strong emotions, and I thought, you know, is hell why am I doing this you know I want to meditate so that life can be easier and less complicated and it seemed like the longer I meditated the worse it got and the Buddha said in one of the scriptures he said the path is beautiful in the beginning beautiful in the middle and beautiful in the end and Joseph mentioned that in a talk and I sort of stormed up to his room afterwards and said to him there's nothing beautiful about what I'm experiencing and he said, no, there isn't, but he said, there does come a break-even point in our willingness to open to pain, in our willingness to open to what's difficult. Eventually what begins to happen is all the ways that we resist difficulty, all the ways that we fight it, all the ways that we deny it, all the ways that we avoid it, begin to fall away until we find ourselves dealing with the bare experience of what's going on. And to my surprise, when I was able to do that more and more, I found that what was going on wasn't nearly as bad as it was when it was gridlocked with fear and anger and frustration. So in, in one way, the practice is about coming to an experience of life that is free of reaction. And I, for me, that is the deepest expression of love. Because, yeah, you know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of pain over the years. I mean, you know, apart from the virus, I've, I have a really complicated back situation. And um, it's been very painful. And, you know, I began to see just how much I didn't accept it, you know. And over the years, the pain of that non-acceptance became so great that eventually I was able just to say, oh, God. I have to let go and as soon as I let go 
it became immeasurably easier. And then what happened is there's an arising of faith, and there's not doubt. It's like faith is then born because you see that even that pain is workable, and that I am not that pain, and that I'm not a victim of that pain. And as that kind of experience of life begins to unfold in every aspect and level of our lives, we can no longer feel victimized. We can no longer enter into some sort of conflict with ourselves or maybe with, with, with other people because we know that that is the direction of more and more suffering. You know, and a lot of people feel like the Buddhist path is too gloomy. You know, I mean, listen to me, I've been thinking about suffering all afternoon. But I feel like, like, for me, an appropriate response to suffering is the doorway to a kind of happiness that I never ever expect. important question. Um, I don't know if you've read the Carlos Castaneda books. Yeah, you know, they talk a lot about the warrior. He, he talks a lot. Don Juan, the sort of the um, sort of Native American spiritual teacher of Carlos Castaneda, speaks about being a warrior and like facing death and facing life and being bold and magnificent and there are these great images of Castaneda standing on the edges of, of a cliff and, and, and you know, sort of saying, my God, give it to me all, let me die of the suffering, I will not be cowed by it, give me the worst and let me see if I can hold it. And this image of the warrior, I mean, that's, that is not an image that I necessarily advocate but I like the idea of a spiritual warrior because I, I think that a true commitment to living one's life with awareness implies warriorship because it is terribly difficult to live in this world awake and open to what is going on. And I think that if we choose to do that, we are great warriors. And we fly in the face of the way in which most of our community lives, which is in distraction of all different kinds and in denial of what is going on. Well, it seems to me the uh, quality of the warriors to actually be clear about what you're fighting for. Most warriors should be, and have that clarity. At least you can add some purpose to your life. 
you know, did, did you say that you'd read some of the Castaneda's books? Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, you know, over the years, actually, Halen Rodney introduced me to Castaneda in 1981. Um, there's been a lot of controversy around him over the years, you know. But I feel like what he did was, you know, you know, he just kind of, you know, he said, the art of the warrior and the poise of the warrior is magnificent, you know. He, you know, he said, if we are willing to come face to face with life, we are magnificent. And I think it's wonderful to, to affirm the courage of anybody that chooses to do that. And I feel like there's a lot of really healthy affirmation of the spiritual journey in those books. But I think that it's, it's great that I was able to clarify that. Because I think if we enter into meditation fighting, you know, and wielding a, a sort of sword in all directions, that's not going to help anybody. You said that you'd like to live as long as possible. Mm. So would I. Mm. Without getting into the territory of why, mm. should we take that for granted? That's better to be embodied than, or alive than dead. Well, I am enjoying life so much now, so much more than I ever did before. I have interludes, sometimes long interludes, of such happiness and, and like connection that it's such a different experience of life that perhaps selfishly or whatever, I want more of it because it's been such a long struggle. Mm. I feel that if we come face to face with our mortality, if we make that journey, and for each of us it's a different journey, you know, and, you know, I'm sure for most people, if the journey is authentic, it's challenging because we all want security. We all want to feel like the ground is firm beneath our feet. If we come face to face with the fundamental insecurity of life, which is the central expression of our mortality, then what that means is that every moment is really the only moment each moment is the only moment that makes sense. And so what I found is that what I've been able to do is to bring all my energy into each moment and it's workable. If I try to bring energy into this moment plus all that happened plus anticipating the future, I don't have enough energy for that. Now I feel that if we can make this journey, and it's a slow journey, and it's a long journey, and I've had a good kick in the backside to make it, and I don't say I've made it fully, I've made it to some extent, then I feel that there is no reason for us to hold out for the possibility of a miracle. And this is a tricky area, yeah. because I think if we go for a miracle without facing mortality, then we kind of reaching out for something ahead of us and we become very ungrounded, we deny what, what's happening now, it's just a sort of dream. I also think 
and this is my experience, that in the years that I was really focusing on mortality, particularly after my diagnosis, I must have been a real misery to be around because it was so dark and gloomy. And I don't think that that serves us either. It might be necessary for a while. So what I see now is that it's possible for me to offer a prayer to, I don't know who, I mean, I don't know what's out there, but to say, you know, I will try to create a climate in my life. No, I will try to live my life in a way that does not mitigate against the possibility of a miracle happening. And I feel like that is a reasonable prayer because it's not to the exclusion of the fact that I know that I could die in any moment, you know? And so, you know, I think that we need to be very careful if our spiritual practice becomes life-denying, you know? I mean, it's a lovely thought. I mean, you know, six years ago, there was not a cell in my body that believed. I mean, if somebody said, you're going to live for six years, you know, I would have been hysterical, you know? I was so sure that, you know, I was about to go. And I don't know why I'm around, you know? I mean, I certainly don't think I have any secret recipe. I nearly died last year, you know, I could die next week or tomorrow, you know, and I've grappled with that as best I can. But each day as part of my morning ritual, I affirm that I'm going to live my life in a way that whatever miracles are possible, I don't want to stand in the face of them. You know, if, if I say a miracle is not possible, then I think there's no chance of a miracle happening. But if I hang on to the wish for a miracle as, oh God, I want the miracle, and that's all I'm doing, then we're up in the clouds, you know. So I would like to live long, and that's why, you know, as hard as it is to stop the teaching, I really do know that it's no longer appropriate for me to do it. But I'll find other things that bring me great joy. I mean, one of the things that's happening with me now is that there's a huge creative spirit coming through me. And uh, a couple of years ago, I started meeting with a friend who's a great singer in the United States and a close friend of mine. And she and I would get together and our agreement was that we would not talk, that this was not therapy, that this was playtime. This was our playtime together. So we had this lovely studio and we would meet there every Friday afternoon and when I walked into the studio, I mean she has this magnificent voice, you know, you know, she would say, you know, Oh Gavin, I'm so happy to see you, tell me what's been going on in your life, you know, and then I would say, well, I'm feeling a little down today, but you know, I'm looking forward to having a good time and then, you know, we would do duets and, you know, if I was feeling down, I'd say, oh God, I got these terrible blood counts today. I feel really depressed. And then she said, honey, let us sing the blues. <laughs> and so, you know, we sang the blues together and she said, you know, she said, and tell me, what are you wearing? She said, 
because I see you in a red slinky sequined outfit leaning against the piano <laughs> and so we developed this thing and we had a whale of a time and by the time I left there it was like all the doom and gloom are gone now I'm no great singer and I've no illusions about that <laughs> but what has surprised me is that I can sing and I can be quite astonishingly creative. In fact, Molly said, do you think I could bring a tape recorder in here and record some of this? And I said, no, you know, that would just add an element. This really needs to be spontaneous. You know, and sometimes, you know, like once my T-cells were really low and I was like in this real funk. And so what we decided was we were going to line up all of the T-cells in front of me. And so we lined them up and I said, you know, she said, well, tell me what they're wearing today. <laughs> and I said, well, they're wearing pink net stockings, high-heeled shoes, <laughs> beehive hairstyles, you know. And we just like went on this whole like jazz thing. And then, you know, they were kicking to the left and they were kicking to the right. I don't know if anybody's seen the show Crazy for You here. It's wonderful. I mean, I caught on Broadway last year. It's a stitch. And that was the inspiration for this three hours, riotous three hours that we had. Now that was a part of me that I never ever knew was there. And so, you know, while it's sad that I'm, I'm giving up teaching, what's wonderful about it is that I'm doing something that I need to do. That my love, devotion and perhaps attachment, no definitely attachment to teaching, is something I now have to deal with and let go. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing other things that I just haven't had the time to do and that are going to be freed up. My back has prevented me from playing the piano for a really long time, like 10 years. And I never really took lessons. In a boarding school, playing the piano was really sissy stuff, you know. So it was like, no way. So I, you know, I used to sneak off and play in the afternoon when nobody was around. but it wasn't cultivated and I have a lot of music in me and I play by ear well when I was in San Francisco um, over Christmas uh, my friend Glenn who I was staying with has a gorgeous grand piano he's a concert pianist and he was away and I sat down at this piano and played because I knew that he was going to give me a massage this evening so I didn't care what it did to my back and what came out of me was a music that had never been possible before. I was absolutely astonished. So that's something I might do, you know? And I feel like with this virus, the, the meditation has served me being able to listen and it's given me the courage to let go as I've gone along. But it's not all letting go. It is then like, like you know, allowing the next thing to arise, you know, so I'm excited, you know, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting, you know, to live a long life, as long as that is not in denial of the fact that we can die in any moment. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Wonder why. Yeah, oh, that's why. I'm having too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope I'm going to go on retreat with Fiori Copo, you know, where I lived for two years, uh, for a year. But I wasn't referring just to your, you, yeah. but to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. 
and you know I think that if we live our life enjoying our life fully and letting go where we need to I think that that it's kind of life affirming you know to want to live a life that's full and delightful you know you know when I started practicing you know in the tradition that I began some of the teachings are pretty gloomy you know and you know I heard some of these teachings and I thought oh god you know this is like the chamber of horrors you know and uh, and you know over the years I've come to find a path that's true for me within the myriad of teachings of the Buddha and that's been part of the joy you know and uh, for me what is important is because so many years of my life was a kind of living death that there's something really important about affirming life and going for life. Thank you. Oh yeah. Gavin, <laughs> when people are really doing it so yeah. don't you just really feel that letting go? No. It's like what I do is I bring more love than ever to him because I know that it's not something that he wants to do and that, you know I mean as I look back and Rand and I had a conversation the other day and he said to me you know just look what the last three months of your life have been like I was in San Francisco with a friend who is very sick with AIDS and it was wonderful to be with him it was also immensely difficult and I was quite relieved to leave I mean I was sad to leave but also quite relieved just to get away I came back to find my mother in really bad health, you know. So I started arranging for her to have this operation, and she went in for the operation, and then she came out and nursed it. And I, you know, I was doing a lot of, I spent a lot of time arranging these promotions and bringing these books out because there were no books. And I just was so busy, 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 busy. And So I stopped, you know, and I just said, hmm, I have to bring some changes here. And, uh, and that's what I'm doing, you know. Kevin, you think if you don't get a big kick in the backside like you said you got, there's a way out of all the lies and all the distractions and all of everything that people do? I have to believe that because I can't believe that that freedom is conditional upon immense suffering. You know, I think that one of my teachers and friends, the man called Christopher Titmuss, and he said to me that, you know, he has not had a lot of suffering in his life. And that his journey, which has been deep and long, and, and he's a wonderful teacher and light all over the world, and he said that his journey was really motivated by a deep inquiry into life. He just was driven by inquisitiveness. <coughs> and he just wanted to know why, you know. So I don't think it's necessary but I do think that if we're given 
you know, a clobber over the head, might as well use it in a positive way, you know, because it immediately sets us apart from most of the world, you know. Most of the world will continue to live their lives as if, you know, they'll never die. And if you're really clobbered, you know that that's a delusion. And the end of the delusion or the idea that we're going to live forever is a very important part of the spiritual practice. And even some of my teachers have said to me that, that, that the reality of death is not as inculcated in their lives, although they've been sitting for 20 years longer than me, as it is for me. So, you know, I'm so grateful that I was able to use this situation. I would never choose the virus, obviously, but, um, you know, might as well get some mileage out of a bummer, you know. has been in many situations that the first step is acknowledging what is going on. In other words, if we don't know that there is self-hatred and inner conflict, then we're a non-starter because we're not aware of what's going on. So for me, the meditation practice, seeing the thoughts that come and go, seeing the emotions that come and go, seeing the reactions that come and go, began to alert me to the fact that I cheated myself in a way that I would never cheat another person. I saw that I was totally unforgiving of myself, I was completely harsh with myself, that I was crucifying myself with a kind of glee at every corner. And, you know, we start reacting to it and we start saying, you know, I hate that this is going on, how awful. I've been such a stupid person and, and we get caught in reaction again and that doesn't help and then slowly we feel the, the pain of the reaction and we come to the second like phase which is acceptance it's like and you know and often for me that was maybe a year later you know it was you know my heart said enough I accept this I accept this. And so then every time it arises, instead of saying, oh God, there it goes again, the response is more, oh, you know, there's another one of those chirpy little thoughts. I had this, this uh, experience on a retreat where I was just like bombarded by these violent thoughts. It was really hard. So I decided that I was going to call all these thoughts by one name and I was going to call them the voice and I, I, every time the voice came I, I, I would like deep pitched I would say voice, 
voice, you know. So, you know, my meditations were literally like voice, voice, <laughs> in, out, anger, voice, voice. I was just like, it was so amazing just how much I was crucifying myself. And I, I, I went through a number of months of just accepting it. And then it became sort of a joke, you know. It was like, you know, instead of saying the voice, and I'll, you know, this wasn't in the meditation hall, this was out in the woods, and the voice came up, I would go like this, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would just like say, well, you know, ain't got no effect on me any longer, you know. And that's the, the acceptance. And when we accept it, then I think we are beginning to shift. It's like the pattern no longer has the grooves it had before. And sure, we'll go through times where certain situations will evoke, you know, a lot of inner stuff. But over the years, I've pretty much stopped completely. And I am so grateful for that, because I was the worst. I mean, I was an absolute Nazi with myself, you know. And um, have to start with recognizing it, acknowledging it, accepting it, and being one of the most exhilarating unfoldings of the practice. Because so much energy goes into that. You know, when I was diagnosed, it was like I was back in the closet again. You know, shamed of the diagnosis. I was dirty. I was infected. I was, you know, this and that. And, you know, it was like, you know, I came out of the closet as a gay man many years before. Then I was like dealing with the sexual abuse and I was like back in the closet. And then I came out of the closet as a, you know, a sexually abused person. And then I was diagnosed and boom, the door stand closed again. <laughs> you know, and then. But it, was, yeah, it sort of got easy. It didn't take me long to realize that is history, you know. But if there are those patterns, they're really tenacious, you know. But it's possible to work with them. Mm. Um, for me, dealing with death um, uh, or immortality is something that I've I find easier than actually looking at the idea or having close with my idea or the fear of suffering um, in the process of dying. And that, I'm to ask you about that. How have you been able to process that? Would you just repeat your question? Sorry. In the, yeah. um, I've been able to deal with, 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 with the idea of death in the sense of not being you know, immortal. but. What I find more difficult to deal with is the fear of suffering yeah. in the process of dying. Mm-hmm. That's something that yeah. I'd Well, I think certainly one of the most scary things for me with this virus is what will I be dealing with before I go? If indeed that's what's meant to be. I mean, I'm always holding the possibility that I may not go. I may be wiped by a passing bus, you know. Um, And I I have fear too about the circumstances of dying because I've seen people die in the most horrible ways. I think that if we're cultivating a spirit of compassion 
and love and acceptance and awareness in our lives, we are providing ourselves with a tool for opening to whatever arises. And that if there is enormous suffering at some point, our response can be one of compassion and care and love rather than one of terror and fear and, uh, and reaction. And I remind myself that, you know, if it's awful, I have some tools to work with it. And I'm not trying to present myself as some sort of hero, you know. But, um, you know, I think that I think the, the essence of your question is coming face to face with the reality of suffering, you know, and that once we make that journey to whatever degree, to that very degree, we are <coughs> equipped and enabled to respond to what arises appropriately. You know, when I was in hospital last year, what I didn't know was that everybody thought I was going to die. There wasn't a part of me that thought I was going to die until I had that experience, which didn't last very long, you know. And um, I was in a lot of pain and it was scary and I had all these buttons and knobs and beats and lights and things and the food was abominable and stuff. But my friends held me and looked after me all through the whole experience. And it was fine, to my surprise, that experience. So when the doctor said to me, Gavin, if you don't rest deeply and well for the next four months, he said, your health is never going to be the same again. This was after the publication of my book and all of these, these really generous reviews and there were all of these offers to teach here and there. And there was even a during the beginnings of a film deal, they wanted to make a film of my life, and I was like the flavor of the month, you know. <laughs> and it was like I came to a point when I realized I'm going to let go of all of that. It was like in one sweep, in one thought, in one movement of my heart, I knew it's more important that I take care of myself than enter into this madness, you know. And I'm not saying that a lot of these people were generous, and a lot of the officers were very kind, but, you know, I think that if we sensitive to the stirrings of our hearts, we are, we are probably <coughs> as best equipped to respond to difficult situations as we can be. And, you know, other tools like awareness and loving kindness and compassion also, I think that is part of sensitivity of the heart. Uh, I just want to say one further thing about, you know, you mentioned uh, fear of death. Um, part of the journey that we make on coming to terms with our mortality is really experiencing in ourselves with every fiber of our being that nothing is permanent that there is nothing to hold on to that there is no security anywhere and that any manifestation of security is a dream and when we know that 
then attachment becomes a much lesser force in our lives and you know we can let go a lot easier and so if we're facing enormous suffering before we die I think while it might be horrific pain and stuff we'll be as best equipped as we possibly could be to use that experience more skillfully than we would have been otherwise Oh, um, trying you. Did you have any um, journey into committing suicide? Yeah, I've, <coughs> I've thought about it. You know, when I was in San Francisco, one of the things that was really difficult was the reality of AIDS was everywhere. I was staying in the Castro area. This friend of mine was terribly sick, so there were IVs and needles and syringes <coughs> and pills and drugs just everywhere in the refrigerator and stuff and just about everybody I met was HIV positive you know it was just like amazing every day in the newspaper there was a double page of pictures of guys who died in the last couple of days you know and one of the things that really shocked me was you know I spent an evening with a number of guys and they were seriously talking about when they were going to commit suicide and you know some were going to wait until their next birthday and do it and you know some were going to wait until after Christmas some of them wanted but suicide is is a very alive option for a lot of people with AIDS in places like San Francisco you know it's perhaps more understandable because so many of the people there have just seen the reality of the, of the disease so vividly that it's just too overwhelming to think of having to deal with it. Living in a tiny New England village, one of the things that's a kind of blessing is that I don't know anybody around who's HIV positive. Everybody's pretty much in the closet about it. I'm not, but but pretty much everybody is and the blessing of that is that it's not a reality that I'm bumping into all the time and I can kind of easily hold myself as a fully alive human being not a human being defined by this virus that's a facet of who I am but it's not the totality of who I am I've thought about suicide a, a number of my friends have committed suicide the first time it happened I was really angry and I thought about it a lot, I spoke to a lot of people, I read a lot about it and where I stand now is that I don't think I'll do it not because I'm great or heroic, it just doesn't feel like an option right now and that might change, you know um, but I totally respect the choice to suicide that so many people are making in San Francisco, a lot of doctors are assisting uh, suicide. It's like a war zone now. And I must also say that there is a triumph of the spirit in San Francisco that is dazzling. Some of the responses to AIDS are so innovative, so inspiring, so 
totally amazing, you know. And people absolutely refuse to surrender any, you know, any sense of their self-worth and they are living the most outrageous lives with the disease, doing things that they certainly would have done before the disease, absolutely unfazed by the fact that they're dealing with the virus. And so, it, you know, I was at this restaurant and this guy was on an IV and he had it hooked under the umbrella <laughs> and he was having his meal and eating his meal and his IV was like going on, you know. And, you know, that's how people, you know, are there. So, in that respect, it was wonderful for me. I mean, I, you know, I really learned a lot about spirit also. I wouldn't like to live there. It's just too heartbreaking, you know, too heartbreaking. I need a place where I can come to balance a lot more easily, and it was really hard there. Yeah. Have you um, come across any education program in America? And if they can explain the content? Well, there's a lot of age education <coughs> going on. I mean, in each of the major and even minor cities, you'll probably find two or three programs going on, usually addressing different c communities dealing with AIDS. I mean, it's no longer a gay disease at all. In fact, the, the gay percentage of HIV is very low now, you know. Um, there's massive education going on because it's really, you know, once somebody is infected at this stage, you know, I don't believe it's an automatic death sentence. I cannot believe that because there are people that have lived, you know, 15, 16, 17 years. <coughs> and my experience of life is that everything arises and passes away and change is happening and that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the change needs to happen in that direction. What I'm not suggesting is some sort of new age ethereal thing, but I feel like there is deep wisdom behind not seeing AIDS as a you know, as a death sentence, because it's not. In in San Francisco, there are a lot of men who've been affected for 20 years who meet every week and are being monitored. And it's still mysterious to them why these men are still alive. And I love to hear that. Not because I feel like, oh, if they can do it, I must do it. Not that. It's just that it supports that part of me that feels like I'm just not going to stand in the face in any way, on any level, of the possibility of being one of those. And if I die, I die. So there are a multitude of organizations. You know, in places like San Francisco and New York, you know, there are dozens. You know. Are there different organizations? Well, you know, some are Hispanic people. Basically, you know, they're doing a lot of education in the schools, free distribution of condoms, you know, trying to get to the schools earlier and earlier because, you know, kids there are having sex, you know, before they're teenagers. And, um, you know, there have been stories of kids dying of AIDS when they're like 15, which means that they probably were infected when they were like 8, you know, because it does usually take a certain period of time for the disease to run its speediest course, you know.
Well, I think part of the social approach is condoms. Because I know many people who live very active sexual life, couples where one of them is gay and one isn't, who use condoms and have been alive for 10 years and the other one has not been infected. So I think that that is dangerous information and there is a lot of dangerous information out there. We had a guy out here, I can't remember his name, Bieli, who advocated a position that's becoming increasingly popular and which is provocative and thought-provoking that the virus is not the cause of AIDS, that there's no such thing as AIDS and that people are dying because they're just catching these diseases randomly. I just can't go along with that, you know. It just seems like, you know, for somebody to say to me there's no such thing as AIDS, and I've seen 60 of my friends, a lot of them, you know, who are now dead, having gone through somewhat similar processes, um, I think it's, you know, that that sort of thinking may ultimately prove to be correct, but I think traveling the world and putting it out is just confusing the issue, you know. He says that we should stop all AIDS research, stop it, and then he said the epidemic will end. And he really speaks passionately. And he was all over the newspapers up in Joe Bogan. Durban. There is a comment in today's Argus by somebody who actually says that his view is that they stop funding um, people with HIV and looking after them, the disease itself will die away. Yeah. That's a lovely dream. Fortunately, you know, it's so politicized in the States that anybody who makes a statement like that is in serious trouble. I mean, there'll be at least 50,000 faggots on his doorstep. (laughs) 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 Making his life an utter hell, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I would be there with him, you know. Because, you know, that really diminishes the deaths that have happened, you know. Somebody, a famous woman, said at a workshop I was at that she felt that AIDS was... Somebody asked her why the gay community being so affected by AIDS, and she said, well, she really felt that the uh, the gay community was chosen because um, we are so sensitive that... that, uh, we could learn all the lessons that we needed to and then we could share our understanding with the world and help save the planet. Well, I tell you, <laughs> she was in serious trouble. In actual fact, she had to leave, you know, because there was an uproar. There were like 250 people with AIDS there. And that is so offensive, you know. I mean, what does a mother think when somebody who has some authority, she's a great woman, done a lot of good work, says that her son was chosen so that he could be a teacher 
of what he learned. That's horrible, you know. There's a lot of misinformation, I feel, and a lot of misguided stuff. Somebody had a question over there. No? They probably have, but they're not voting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you get by only with attaining greater spirituality, or do you need the love of a fellow human being? Well, my experience has been, I have two friends, my, two of my closest friends in America who have been together for like 25 years, and one of them is HIV positive and the other one is not. You know, they were the people I was thinking of who live a very active sexual life and have done, and switched to using condoms, and it makes a huge difference because Andrew has joined Mark on the journey and he really helps carry the load in a way that Mark is not so weighted by the difficulty. And, um, you know, I think that the fact that they've been together for all these years really helps too because when things get really hard, it w- that difficulty will be sustained by the love that is built up over the years. And I think that if the relationship is healthy and strong, I think it's a wonderful blessing. I think that if both people are positive, and I'm, you know, I last year, late last year, started a relationship. I'm not sure where it's going to go. In fact, he might even be dead when I get back. But both being positive was actually really helpful because he understood what was going on with me on this day and that day and was able to respond to it from his experience and sometimes I find that when I'm dealing with somebody who is not HIV positive it's clear that they really don't understand what's going on or they don't understand the feelings that have been evoked and so I think that you know my sense is that one of the important things is to ensure that the relationship is really supported um, through at least the initial period by maybe psychotherapy, maybe counseling, because of course it's like a bomb that's gone off. But I think in the long run, it could be an immensely nurturing and nourishing thing to have someone to share the journey. And while there of course is a possibility that one's going to die and one's going to live longer, I've seen so many people who've made that journey and that journey has been, you know, sometimes difficult but in many respects absolutely beautiful and there's been such love generated in that situation, in that experience that I used to love just going and being there because it was just so touching, you know. But I think that, you know, if the relationship is short-term, as is this one, he's actually a South African man in San Francisco, he's a really wonderful guy, I think it's a real challenge because it's hard. I mean, I had three weeks there that were really hellish, and he was going through hell, but um, you know, I sometimes wonder whether 
it's possible for me to sustain a companionship <coughs> through what he's dealing with without having a long history together and, and, and that it just might be not possible for me, you know.
you know, I'm committed to spreading my wings as wide as possible in a healthy way. And sometimes I overdo it and I and I wobble, but I can't wrap myself in a cocoon of protection totally for fear that I'm going to overdo it because I don't want to live that sort of way. You know, I'd rather be dead. Would anybody like to respond to that? I mean, I certainly will, but would anybody like to respond to that? Well, I'll start, because I think it is a really important question. I think that because, for whatever reason, so many human beings are closed and armored and self-protected, that the experience of life is enormously reduced and limited by all that armoring. And the spiritual path, whatever its nature, must on some level address the question of really fully opening to life. Now, the, the part of your question that I feel I, I want to address is, I don't believe that the spiritual path is about walking around with one's heart open in every situation. Sometimes it's absolutely appropriate that we might even deliberately close our heart. It might be that the situation involves too much suffering, too much confusion, that we're overwhelmed, that the situation is so inappropriate that maybe the most important thing to do is to just step out of that situation and maybe come back later. So I think it's about opening and closing with compassion and care. And I think that that is, as you say, one of the essences of the path, is being willing to open to life in all its beauty and all its magnificence and to the suffering in exactly the same way. That is the experience of equanimity where we can just receive life pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, moment to moment, just as it is, and not respond to that with reaction, which usually takes the form of denial, avoidance, anger, rage, fear. And I'm not saying that denial, avoidance, anger, rage, fear are bad, it's just that when those arise, then that's what we open to and try and understand. So it is about opening and sometimes it's about closing, you know. How do you feel now about the person in the context of the Aishwana? How do I feel about? The person in the context of the Aishwana. Oh, well, I think I know who it was. And it was a sort of a last-minute fling before going into the monastery. And um, if I'd known more about it, I certainly would have been a lot more careful. And I'm pretty sure it was him because 
as I picture him, and I've never forgotten what he looked like, he was clearly dealing with, you know, an advanced stage of the disease. I was completely ignorant of the virus at the time. I was like a sort of innocent from abroad, you know. You know, I've accepted this virus. I mean, I really have been able to accept it in my life. I wouldn't choose it, but I don't fight it at all. And I accept that that happened. It would be a great pity if he knew, and he probably did, and at the same time infected me, because I think that would be like really dreadful karma for him. But whatever. I don't feel like any sort of emotions about him. I I sometimes extend compassion and love to his memory, you know, because if he did know, he didn't know any better how to behave in that situation. And I know that if I get embroiled in anger and rage and a sense of, you know, betrayal and stuff, he's probably dead now. And I'm the one that's suffering, you know. So I have really no feelings about him. I'm pretty sure it was him. It was like a wild night before going into the monastery. <laughs> Sometimes the tiniest little things have quite an impact. We just have a few more minutes. If there's anybody that has a question, please do ask it, because we'll close in about five minutes. Okay, you say that all the rage and volcano erupted when you were diagnosed mm. in 89. Mm. How would you describe your life before that? I mean, where, did you, where was all that stuff, and what did you do with it, and how would you describe the way you lived for all that time before that? Well, I think that it's not true that we carry like a reservoir of anger and fear and rage somewhere inside of us and that our job is to open the taps and let it all spill out. I think that is a particular opinion, psychological, that is unhelpful. I think that anger arises because of circumstances. I think our history leaves us with like wiring. It's like we're patterned by our history. And if our buttons are pushed in specific ways, then they evoke certain feelings. So what was happening was that I was accessing memories. I was kind of going back into history and being there for the first time since it all happened. And all of that stuff was just pouring through me. No, I mean before the volcano. Well, I mean yeah, before the volcano, it was just firmly in place. You know, it was just like being held. The patterns were... You know, it's like I was saying a moment ago, that we're armored and protected. And sometimes we need to be that way until we may be mature enough to deal with it, you know. That the armoring is really important. Like if we didn't armor ourselves as children, we wouldn't have survived to do the healing work now. So, you know, I'm a great believer that we need to have a lot of respect for the armoring and not to push too much. You know, so I'm a, I'm a sort of soft touch when it comes to, to um, meditation. Not that you know, I'm very serious about it. But my experience has been that, for me, 
the more gentle I am with myself, because my commitment is so absolute, I don't have to worry about falling asleep or you know being sort of slap-hide about things. So I don't have to worry about that. And so for me, I've seen that in initial years of the practice, which is quite sort of strident and rigid, um, maybe it served me in those years, but particularly when I met Michelle, and she introduced me to this unthinkable thought at that point that the practice was essentially about love and that being gentle and kind to oneself was actually okay and that if the practice is evolving for us in a way that is you know tough and rigid and hard that it's not appropriate you know and so she, she, she like began like she said when you find a lot of pain she said, try this, I love myself, I totally accept who I am, help me accept what's happening in my body now, I will never forsake you, you know, that was like, you know, something that was coming from another universe, you know, but it was the key for me, it was the key, that attitude is what unlocked the door for me. And all of us has our own path to God, you know, I'm not for one moment saying that this way is the best and that way is no good. Our responsibility is to find our own path, our own melody, our own sort of long life song. Would you say that the childhood you would recognize you as an adult? I mean, I mean the childhood you, would you ever have imagined yourself to grow into this adult that you are now? In childhood, would mm. I have imagined? Yeah. I think that in my very, very early childhood, very early, I may have imagined how I am now, but I departed from that. Mm. What I believe is that, you know, some people feel that childhood abuse and that kind of murders the spirit. I don't believe that. My experience, well, I don't believe that for me. Okay, I don't want to make it universal. But I believe that that what it does is it arrests the spirit, and that if we can find a way to reconnect with it and come to deal with it with the love and compassion that wasn't there at the time when we closed down, that we can join hands again over the decades and begin to walk with that same beautiful childlike spirit that needed to close down all those years ago. And sometimes when I go walking in the woods around Amherst, which are so beautiful, I feel a kind of childlike effervescence and joy that is just wonderful. And I don't believe I ever experienced that as a child. And I'm experiencing it now. That's another reason why I want to stick around if it's possible. Well, I really thank you it's been really lovely. I'm very surprised to see that it's five o'clock, and um, I wish you all love and joy, happiness, and freedom from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.